Between your Bibles to Psalm 119, Psalm 119, verses 9 to 16. Psalm 119, verse 9. There the word of Christ says this. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I have told of all the ordinances of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. Let's pray. Well, Father, we come to you today, Lord, asking for you to teach us your statutes. Lord, we know that you are the blessed and only God. And that, Lord, the only way that we can enter into true blessedness in this life, Lord, is by having your favor upon us. Lord, we know that you have no regard for the wicked, but that, Lord, you love and you cherish your people. And, Lord, we want to be those who are, Lord, walking according to your commandments, Lord, who are living faithfully before you. Lord, not so that we could earn our way to heaven through our own works, but, Lord, because of the great salvation that you've granted to us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, how could we not love you and how can we not walk in your ways? So, Father, we pray that today you would teach us, Lord, how it is that we can keep our way pure. And, Lord, how it is that we can live a life that is pleasing in your sight. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we are continuing our study of Psalm 119 today. And we remember that this psalm is a prayer to God from the prophet whose greatest desire is to know God through his word. Right? John chapter 17, verse 3 says, This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life, he says. Eternal life is not playing golf. It is not floating around on the clouds. It is not hunting and fishing and enjoying leisure and hobbies for all eternity. Eternal life is knowing God and knowing Jesus Christ, whom God the Father has sent. The blessed existence of eternity is found in communion with the Lord, knowing and experiencing God in all of his glory. And this blessed existence begins in part now, in this present life for Christians. We begin to partake of the blessings of the heavenly state in this present life. Of course, not to the measure that we will attain to in the life to come. For now, we know God in part, but then in the life to come, we will know fully just as we have been fully known, as it says in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. So even though we have not arrived at our final state of perfection, it does not mean that we cannot in this life have some knowledge and some experience of eternal life. We can begin to experience the joys of heaven in this life by knowing God and by knowing Jesus Christ. And then how is it then in this life that we come to know God? How is it that we come to know his son, Jesus Christ, who was sent by the Father? And it is only through the holy word of God. 
This is why the prophet loves the word of God so much. This is why all of those who are God's children love the word of God. For the word of Christ is the means established by God by which we come to know him and by which we come to enjoy eternal life even now. His fundamental desire is to know God and the word is the avenue by which this desire is fulfilled and so he loves the word of God. And this is how we must be as well. Anyone who claims to love God, who says they want to know God, who boasts of communion and experiences with God, apart from the word of God, is a liar. We know that they're a liar because the Bible clearly, explicitly says that we cannot know God apart from his word. You cannot love God. You cannot have fellowship with God. You cannot have communion with God. You cannot have a relationship with God apart from the word of God. It is impossible. The joys, the blessings of the eternal state begin to be experienced by the child of God in this life through our interaction with the word of Christ. And anyone who would enter into the kingdom of heaven in the life to come must first in this life know God through his word, through the word of Christ. And this is why the prophet loves the word of God so much and why he's speaking so favorably of the word of God. And this is the attitude that we should have. But it is an attitude that sadly is scarcely found in the churches today. So may we strive to know God through his word. Let's pick up Psalm 119 verse 9. Notice there, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. Here, how can a young man keep his way pure? The prophet is here stimulating our minds to ponder, to think about this question, right? This topic. This is necessary because most people, even most who claim to be Christians, are not thinking in these terms. They're not thinking about this. This is not on the forefront of their mind, right? Isn't this the case? Many people are consumed with money, with pleasures, with having a good time. They want to feel good. They want to pamper their self-esteem. These are the things that they're thinking about. They're thinking in terms of these things. How can I make a lot of money? How can I retire at an early age? How can I have a good time in this life? How can I feel better about myself? How can I develop my professional career? How can I be a better version of me? Right, and even in terms of finding a church to attend, people are not thinking about purity, godliness, righteousness, even when they're looking for a church. Most people are asking, what's the music like? Right, do they have music that I like that is to my taste? What activities do you have for the children? What kind of programs are available at the church? What kind of facilities do you have? Now, is the teaching positive and encouraging? Does it build me up and make me feel good about myself? But that's not what the prophet is asking, right? Who is asking this question? Who is thinking about this topic? How can I live a pure life before God? How can I live a godly life? What church, right, what people are going to help me pursue purity and righteousness in my daily living? Very few people are thinking about these things. But the prophet is. This is what's on his mind. It is on his mind, and he wants it to be on our mind as well. And this is something that we must be thinking about each and every day. It must be at the forefront of our mind. How can I Keep my way pure before God. And this is why he's asking it. 
How can the young man keep his way pure? Notice here as well, it is the young man, the young man. Now, in this, of course, he doesn't mean that the young women can give themselves to impurity. He doesn't mean that old men and old women can live an impure life, and it's only the young men who are to be concerned with purity. Everyone who is a Christian, everyone who names the name of the Lord, is called to live a pure and a holy life before God. Amen. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. 2 Timothy 2, 19 says, Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Notice there, it is everyone, everyone who names the name of the Lord, everyone who calls God his God, everyone who claims that Jesus is his Savior and Lord, who is a child of God, is called to abstain from wickedness, which is another way of saying what? To live a pure life. How does the young man keep his way pure? Whether you are young or old or somewhere in between, whether male or female, young men, young women, middle-aged men, middle-aged women, old men, old women, all are called to pursue a life of purity. And everyone must be thinking about this question. How do I keep my way pure? But here, he singles out the young men. Because typically, of all of the groups of people, it is the young men who are most susceptible to living an impure life. Right? Isn't this true, generally speaking? Again, generally speaking, of course, there is impurity across the board. But generally speaking, those who are living the most reckless, riotous, profane life are young men. Young men in their youthful passions, giving themselves over to the passions of the flesh. Generally speaking, it is youths and it is the young men who are the most profane, the most wild, who give themselves to this kind of living. Again, generally speaking, of course, there is impurity in many people, but young men are especially given over to impurity. And isn't it true that people will make excuses for the young people, for the young men? Right? Boys will be boys, they will say. Right? Youths will be youths. He's just out sowing his wild oats, but eventually he'll get it out of his system and he'll settle down and he'll become a more responsible person, right? It's just the way that it is, but eventually he'll get it out of his system and then he'll settle down a bit. But what does the Bible expect of all Christians, even young men, that they would live a pure life? This is what the Bible expects here that all are expected to live a pure life. Purity of life is expected, and it is attainable even by young men. And if the young men who are Christians are expected and able to live a life of purity, then that means all men are expected and all women are expected, those who name the name of the Lord are expected to depart and abstain from wickedness and to live a life of purity before God. Now, this is not an irrelevant question. This is not him speculating on this or that topic. He's not floating in the clouds, pontificating on useless topics that have no bearing on our day-to-day -day life. This is an extremely important question, and it is one that touches every single second of every day of our life. It is fundamental to the Christian life. 
How can I keep my way pure? Now, of course, through our own strength, this is impossible. But by the grace of God, we can live a pure life. By the grace of God, right? Because the grace of God that forgives us of our sins is the same grace of God that delivers us from the power of sin. The grace of God that saves us also teaches us to say no to sin and to say yes to righteousness. And we have several examples. Examples in the Bible of young men who lived pure lives, who lived godly lives, who said no to sin and yes to righteousness. Let's see these examples first. Genesis 39. Genesis 39, verse 6. This would be Joseph. Joseph, who when he was sold into slavery, was 17 years old. And then when Joseph rose to be the Lord of Egypt, he was 30 years of age. So from 17 to 30 is when this takes place, which regardless of when it is, he's a young man. We know that for part of that, he was in prison. So he's likely still a teenager whenever this happens. A teenager at the most in his very early 20s. A young man. But notice Genesis 39, verse 6. There it says, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And it came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? And she spoke to Joseph day after day, and he did not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household was there inside. She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us, and he came in to me to lie with me, and I screamed. When he heard that I had raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with these words, The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came into me to make sport of me, and I raised my voice and screamed, and he left his garment beside me and fled outside. So there, Joseph, this is a severe temptation to have a woman after you in this way, right? Urging you, pleading you to do these types of things, And yet Joseph resisted day after day after day. And even when necessary, he fled. He ran away from her because he was devoted to living a righteous life, a godly life. And he said so. How can I do this great evil in sin against God? I can't do this with you because it would be a sin against God. Primarily, he's not thinking, well, if I do this, I'm going to get a beating. If I do this, my master is going to execute me and I don't want to lose my life. All of those things would be true as well. But here, what's at the forefront of his mind is sinning against God. I don't want to sin against God, and that's why I'm not going to succumb to your temptations and what you want me to do, because it would be an impurity, a defilement before the Lord. And here, Joseph is a young man, a teenage man in his late teenage years, and yet he resists this great temptation. 
because he was devoted to purity. How about 2 Chronicles chapter 34, verse 1? What about Josiah? Josiah, who was a very young man when he became king, and even as a young man, because of his conviction of sin, he brought about reformation and purity, not only for himself, but for the whole land of Israel during his reign. Second Chronicles 34, verse 1. It says, Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Israel, in Jerusalem. He did right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still a youth, he began to seek the God of his father David. Notice that. In the eighth year of his reign. How old was he? Sixteen. Sixteen years of age. He's seeking the God of his father David. And in the twelfth year, so now he's twenty years of age, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the ashram, the carved images, and the molten images. They tore down the altars of the balls in the presence uh, in his presence, in the incense altars that were high above them, he chopped down also the ashram, the carved images, the molten images, he broke in pieces and ground to powder and scattered it on the graves of those who had sacrificed on them. Then he burned the bones of the priests on their altars and purged Judah and Jerusalem. In the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, even as far as Naphtali in their surrounding ruins. He also tore down the altars and beat the ashram and the carved images into powder and chopped down all the incense altars throughout the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. Then it says in verse 8, Now in the 18th year of his reign, now he's 26 years of age, when he had purged the land and the house, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah and Masiah, an official of the city, and Joah, the son of Jehoaz, the recorder, to repair the house of of the Lord his God. And then also, if you see verse 19, it says, when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. So Josiah is a very young man, 16, 20, 26, in, in what's happening in these. And all of those, he would be considered a young man. And yet, what is he doing? What kind of life is he pursuing? A life of righteousness. When other young men at this age are out having a good time, partying, spending time with their friends, giving themselves to uselessness, Josiah is himself concerned about idolatry, about paganism, about what's taking place in the land, purging the land of these altars, doing those types of things. This is what's on his mind. This is the kind of young man that he was when he was 16 and 20 and 26 years of age. And then notice as well in 2 Kings Chapter 23, what it says about him. 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 24. This is the only person who is given this type of commendation in terms of, uh, of in, in the Bible. 2 Kings 23, verse 24. Moreover, Josiah removed the mediums and the spiritists and the teraphim and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might confirm the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah, the priest, found in the house of the Lord. Before him, there was no king like him, 
who turned to the Lord with all of his heart and with all of his soul and with all of his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. This was Josiah, a young man, yet according to God, God's own testimony concerning him, he turned to the Lord with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his might. And he was a young man. This is the way that we should be. How about Daniel? What about the prophet Daniel? Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1, notice what it says in verse 8. It says, But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. So what's on the mind of Daniel? He doesn't want to defile himself. He wants to live a pure life. How can a young man keep his way pure? And Daniel was a young man. They were the ones that were taken captive into this foreign land. And also, doesn't Daniel find himself in a very impossible, a difficult situation? He's in a foreign land away from his family, away from what he knows, with many temptations, many sins, even many excuses that he could make to justify his sin. But what is Daniel doing here? He's pursuing purity. He doesn't want to defile himself, and he takes measures. He does what he can do in order to live a pure life, and God blesses him because of this. One last example, example, 1 Timothy 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 Timothy chapter 4, and verse 12. 1 Timothy 4, 12 says, Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. And then 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19 says, Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this ill. The Lord knows those who are His, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Now in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So there he tells Timothy, don't let anyone look down on you because you're a youth, because you're a young man, but he expects Timothy to be an example to the rest of the church. An example in regards to faith, love, and purity. He is to be a pure person. And then here he tells him, flee youthful lust. Stay away from these things and instead pursue righteousness. This is the way that you are called to live. So in these four examples, we have young men who lived pure lives by the Spirit of God through the Word of God. And this is how we must be as well. We must walk on the pathway of purity, which is only possible by the Spirit through the Word. 
And that's the answer to his question. How can the young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. The word of God reveals to us the pathway of purity. And when we walk in that path, when we align our life with the word of God, then we will keep our way pure. We will live a pure life before God. We must be like Ezra, as it says in Ezra chapter 7, verse 19. Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. He studied it for the purpose of practicing it and then teaching it. This is the way we must be. Verse 10, Psalm 119, verse 10. With all of my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Here we see that the prophet is not living a double life. He's not duplicitous in his desires, but resolute. He's united in his heart to seek God. With all of my heart, he says, I have sought you. From the inner man to the outer man, in every aspect, every capacity of life, he is seeking God with all of his heart. And this is how we must be as well. We cannot commit our way to the Lord Sunday through Friday afternoon. But then the weekend belongs to us. In the weekend, we're going to have a good time. So then we can just do whatever we want. We can live it up. We can frolic about and have a good time. I'll be pure part of the week, and then I'll be impure another part of the week. I'll live a godly life on Monday, but then Tuesday, I'm going to live an ungodly life. Right? We can't do that. That's not the way that we pursue purity, and that's not what he's doing. At all times, with all of his heart, this is the way that we should desire to live. With all of my heart, he says, I have sought you. And so we must seek God with all of our heart as well. As it says in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 9. It says there. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all your might. Isn't that what was being described of Josiah? This very verse was being applied to him. This is the way that he lived. These words which I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. There with all the heart. Again, it is our responsibility to seek God with all of our heart. Yet also we know that it depends completely on the Lord. Right? We should seek God with all of our heart, be diligent to seek Him, but we must pray that God would not let us wander from his commandments. Isn't that what he says there? He says, Lord, I have sought you with all of my heart. Do not let me wander from your commandments. So we cannot be proud. We cannot be self-sufficient. We cannot think that we have arrived to a place where we can never wander, never stumble, never fall into sin. Right? Even in old age, we cannot think that purity of life is easy. It's going to be easy for me to attain this. I have nothing to worry about because I'm not a young man anymore. I don't have the passions of youth anymore. So I don't have to trouble myself with sin. And it will be very easy for me to live a pure life. No, we must be on guard 
all of our life and pray that in young age, middle age, old age, that God would not let us wander from his commandments. Wasn't Moses an old man whenever he struck the rock in anger and then was forbidden from entering into the promised land because of his sin? Wasn't Solomon an old man when his heart was turned away from the Lord because of his foreign wives? They were old men, and yet they committed sins against God. Well, this is why we must pray, Lord, do not let me wander from your commandments, whether young or old, or as Jesus says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, and as the apostle says, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13. We must be on guard against sin, and we must pray that God himself would deliver us from all evil, that he would safely bring us into his heavenly kingdom, and that he would keep us from wandering to the right or to the left. Verse 11, Psalm 119, verse 11. Your word I have treasured in my heart, that I may not sin against you. This should be the case with all Christians. Here, we're, he's talking about having a goal, a goal in mind, and then doing what is necessary to bring about to accomplish that goal. The end goal of our sanctification is that we would not sin against God. That sin would be completely purged from our life. Isn't this what our salvation is about? To deliver us from evil, to deliver us from all sin from its penalty, from its power, from its presence. That sin would be completely obliterated in the life of the Christian, right? We are justified at our salvation, at our conversion. But during our sanctification, we are daily growing, progressively growing, so that we are overcoming sin more and more and more. But we know in this life, we will never obtain sinless perfectionism, that there's always going to be the flesh and there's always going to be sin that we have to fight against, that sin remains a reality for the Christian. But we don't want to sin, do we? What Christian comes into the day saying, I want to sin against God many, many times today, right? If a person is thinking like that, they show that they're not a believer, right? They're not a Christian. No Christian wants to sin against God, even though he still does it. He doesn't want to do it because he knows the goal of his salvation is that he would be made like Christ, that we would be righteous as he is righteous, that we would no longer sin against God. And this is what the prophet desires. He doesn't want to sin against God. And this should be true of us as well. Again, though in this life we will never attain to sinless perfectionism, it should still be our desire to live a godly life, to live a life that is free from sins against God. How can we want to sin against God? Seeing that he is both our creator and he is our redeemer. He is our heavenly father. And what about our Lord Jesus Christ? Didn't he give his life for us? Hasn't he shed his blood for us because of our sin? So how could we want to sin against him? And what about the Holy Spirit of God? Who wants to grieve the Holy Spirit of God? Who has regenerated us? Who fills us? Who causes us to walk in the ways of God? So no, of course, we don't want to sin against God. No Christian wants this to be true. Instead, he wants to overcome sin. 
He wants to fight sin. He wants to put sin to death in him. He hates the flesh. He hates the garment that's even stained by the flesh. And he wants to be rid of these things. He wants to be free of these things. As it says in Romans 7, 24, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? He wants to be liberated from his body of death. This is the attitude that we should have. Hatred of sin. I don't want to sin against God. And then here, what is the means that God has established? What is the weapon that God has equipped us with to overcome sin? The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, the sword of the Spirit. This is the weapon that God has put into the hand of the Christian. It is the Word of God. And here, according to the prophet, treasuring God's Word in the heart leads to what? Overcoming sin. That's why he's putting it there. So that I won't sin against you. The Word works in the heart to fight against the flesh so that we overcome sin more and more and more in our life. When we treasure the Word of God in our heart, it's going to impact every part of our being. It's going to affect the way that we think. It's going to change the way we live. It's going to transform our values. It's going to change the things that we say, right? So that our desires are progressively aligning more and more and more with the will of God. And here, to treasure God's word in the heart is to memorize. To memorize the Bible for the sake of meditating on the Bible. Right? Not just so he can have it in his mind, so that he can say this or that. It is memory, memorizing it for the sake of meditating on it, recalling it whenever it is necessary to fight against sin. Treasuring God's word in the heart. The one who is pursuing righteousness. He wants to overcome his sin. He knows the means to overcoming sin is the Bible, is the Word of God. But he also knows that it is impossible for us to have an open Bible in front of our face 24 hours a day. But if the Word of God is treasured in the heart, then no matter where he is at, no matter what he is doing, he has the Word of God with him, and now he can meditate with delight upon the Word of God. So when he lies down in his bed to go to sleep at night, aren't many people, don't their minds wander to this or that? And maybe they begin to wander onto sin? Well, if the Word of God is in the heart, then what can you think about while you're trying to go to sleep at night? You can meditate on the Word of God. You can put it in your mind so that you don't sin, so that you don't give yourself to sinful, evil thoughts. What about when you're mowing the yard? You can't have your open Bible on your lap while you're mowing the yard. You're going to have lines all over the place. You're going to swerve here and there. You might run over the dog. Well, you don't want to do that. But if you have the Word of God in your heart and in your mind, then while you're doing something like that, right, can't you think about it? You can think about it, you can pray about it, you can meditate upon it, you can ponder those truths. What about when you're driving home from work or going on a trip? You can't have your open Bible in front of you, you're going to have a wreck. 
But if you have it in your heart and in your mind, you're able to think about those things. You can talk with your wife, with your children about those things as you're going and doing this, right? And there's many, many other times as well in the day when we cannot have the open Bible in front of us, but if we have the word in our heart, then it doesn't matter because we're able to treasure it. We're able to think about it. We're able to meditate on it. What if they haul us off to prison one day and throw us in prison? and they don't let us have access to the Bible. What are we going to do then if we have not treasured God's word in our heart? If we don't have some, of course, we can't memorize the whole Bible, but we can memorize some of it. We can memorize parts of it, and then we can have it with us no matter where we're at, where we're going, so that we can meditate with the word of God so that we don't sin against the Lord. Now, I know many people will object to memorizing the Bible. And they'll say, well, it's very difficult to do, and I don't have the ability to do so. And certainly it is true that there are some who have a greater capacity, a greater, greater proclivity for memory work and for memorizing than others. But everyone has some capacity to memorize the Bible, right? We all memorize things all the time. Addresses, phone numbers, statistics, movie lines, songs that we've heard, 50 years ago, and we can still sing those songs, all right, even today. So why can't we use that same ability toward the Word of God? Why not redirect that towards something good, the Word of God, seeing that it has such a benefit that I don't sin against God? This is what we should do. And isn't it also the case that with many things that are valuable to us, it takes some effort? It takes some effort. We have to apply ourselves to this and that. Not everything comes easy and not everything comes naturally. Many of the best things in life, right, we have to work at. So we have to work at this as well, to treasure the Word of God in our heart. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 says, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you, right? What else can that mean? Let it richly dwell within you. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let it dwell within you richly. Psalm 119, verse 12. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. The prophet here expresses the blessedness of the Lord. Right, God is the blessed Lord in that God alone has ultimate supreme blessing in himself. And he is the source of all blessing for others. Right, God dwells in a state of blessedness. This is why we pray for God to bless us, to bless our families, to bless our church. We're asking for God to pour out his blessing, right, what is his and to give it to us, to pour it out upon us and to bestow it on us because he is the ultimate source of all blessedness. It says this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, in verses 15 to 16. There, notice what it says of God. It says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immorality, immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, 
To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. He is the blessed and only sovereign, the blessed one. Since God is blessed, then whatever comes from God also possesses his blessing. Now, isn't it true that everyone wants the blessing of God? Isn't this what everyone says? They want God to bless them with money, with long life, with good health, with many children, with success, with pleasures and comforts in this life. But where is the prophet looking for the blessing of God? In the word of God, in God's statutes. He knows that God is the blessed one, and then he wants God to teach him his statutes. Right? That's the goal. The obedient life is the life of blessing, and that life of blessing will not be realized without our knowing the word of God, without being taught the statutes of God. So he wants God to teach him so that he can obey God, so that he can have the blessed life. Verse 13, with my lips I have told all the ordinances of your mouth. The word treasured in the heart will come out of the lips. As it says in Matthew 12, 34, you brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Right? Whether for good or for evil, the Pharisees are filled with evil. Evil is in their heart, and so that's what comes out of their mouth. That's why they're unable to speak what is good. Because they have evil hearts, it manifests itself in their evil mouth. But the same is true for the righteous man. And here in Psalm 119, he has treasured the word of God in his heart, So the good word of God in his heart is also coming out of his mouth. These are the ordinances from God's mouth. They go from God's mouth to his heart to his mouth. His mouth conforming to the mouth of God. Speaking with his lips what God has spoken by his mouth. From God's mouth to our mouth. This is the way that it should be. As it says in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourself in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. God is holy. His words are holy. So we should be holy. And our words should be holy. And they will be holy when we speak what? The word of God. When we are proclaiming the word of God. Also notice here, it is all the ordinances of your mouth. Not some of them, but all of them. He's not ashamed of any part of the word of God. He's not afraid to speak up concerning every ordinance of God's mouth. This is the way that we should be as well. We cannot be afraid of men. We cannot be ashamed of any part of the word of God. Why would we be ashamed of the word of God? They should be ashamed who reject the word of God, who don't believe the word of God, who would resist the word of God, but we cannot be ashamed of any of the ordinances that come from the mouth of God, and we cannot fail to speak up concerning every word of the Lord. Now I say this because there are many who will privately, or if they're in the right kind of company, they will speak openly and favorably about this doctrine or that doctrine if they're in the right company. But when there is the potential for conflict or controversy, then they remain silent. Then they will not open their mouth. I've even heard pastors say, without shame, 
that they believe in the doctrine of election or the doctrine of predestination, but they won't teach it publicly in the church because they don't want there to be controversy and they don't want people to leave the church. Without shame, they say these things, as if it is a virtue. But it's not a virtue. Actually, it is a very shameful thing for a pastor to claim to believe some doctrine, yet fail to teach it to his people. There will be some who will get up, and they will, with great boldness, preach against abortion, which is a violation of the Sixth Commandment, or they'll preach against some sexual sin, which is a violation of the Seventh Commandment, issues where they know in their church there is 100% agreement in these things. But then they won't get up and preach about the Lord's Day, about the Fourth Commandment, because they know if they do, what's going to happen? Many people will be upset. It will offend many, many people, and so they won't touch that commandment with a hundred-foot pole. Why? Everyone agrees on abortion. Everyone agrees on, say, homosexuality. But on the Lord's Day, well, there might be people who are offended, so we're not going to talk about it. Why do men do this? Why would we do this? Only if we don't really believe the Bible. Those who will not speak about the Word of God, about every ordinance, all the ordinances of God's mouth, show that they don't, they don't have faith. They do not believe the Word of God. Even if in a private setting or in a safe setting, they will say that they believe in this doctrine or that doctrine, but if they will not openly speak about it, it shows that they do not truly believe it. They do not have true faith in those things. How can I say this with such definitiveness? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13. 2 Corinthians 4, 13. Says so. Second Corinthians 4.13 says, But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak. I believe, therefore I spoke. We believe it, and then we speak it. So if a person will not speak it, what does it show? What does it prove? They don't believe it. They don't really believe it. And didn't our Lord Jesus Christ say, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of me and my words. Everyone will say, oh no, we love Christ. We're not ashamed of Christ. But then they won't preach his word. They won't speak openly about all the ordinances of the mouth of Christ. But if we are ashamed of Christ in any of his words, then the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Luke chapter 9, verse 26. Back to Psalm 119. 119, verse 14. says, I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. We see here the prophet's zeal, his enthusiasm for the word of God. Right? He rejoices in these things. Right? He is rejoicing in the word of God like other men rejoice in riches. Isn't this true of people? They are very happy when they get money, when they come into wealth, if they receive a big inheritance, if some investment pays off, right? They rejoice in those things, but they don't rejoice in the word of God. But here, 
The righteous man rejoices in the way of God's testimonies. They are enthusiastic about the word of righteousness. Also, verse 15, I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. Notice again his resolve, his determination. He says, I will do this. I will meditate on your precepts. I will regard your ways. Again, he is meditating here for the purpose of obedience. He's not studying the Bible so that he can speculate about this or that, so that he can itch some curiosity that he has, so that he can have intellectual debates with this person or that person. He's reading, studying, memorizing, meditating, talking about the Word of God for the purpose of godliness, so that he can live a righteous life, so that he can know the will of God and walk in his ways. Many people, they use the Bible as a platform for curiosity, for speculation, to promote themselves, right, for these types of things. But that's not the way that we should approach the Bible. We should approach the Bible for the sake of faith and godliness. These are the things that we should desire to be produced in us from the word of God. Then verse 16, I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. He has delight in God's statutes, joy and a desire to know and practice the will of God. Delighting in them, God's word should not be a burden to us. Obedience to God should not be something that we do with a sour attitude. It should not be something that we do begrudgingly. But here, he's doing it with delight. Even if it's something that we've never heard before. Even if it's something that seems odd, that seems strange, that may be hard and difficult for a moment. If we are convinced from Scripture of some doctrine that must be believed or some act of obedience that must be incorporated into our Christian life, then we should do that with joy and delight. We should go in the direction of the Lord. Go in the direction of the ways of God. And we should thank God. Thank you, Lord, for revealing this to me. Thank you, Lord, for teaching me these things. And if God uses some teacher to reveal these things to us, then we should be grateful for them as well for them pointing these things out, whether it's a friend, a teacher, someone who's helping us. Whatever is helping and assisting in benefiting us in knowing the word of God, then we should delight in those things. And we should not forget the word of God. That's what he says, I shall not forget your word. When we come to know the will of God, then do not forget the word of God. Don't forget it. Remember the word of God so that we can do what it says. Now, this forgetting, forgetting is not simply that we have no recollection of what we had previously learned. That's typically not the case. Forgetting the word of God here in this context and typically in the Bible is when someone knows the right thing to do, but then they don't want to do it. They fail to do it. They go on living however they want to please, and they put it out of their mind. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to know what it says. I'm not going to draw it into my mind when I'm making my decision because I don't want to do it. It is willful forgetting, willful disregard for the word of Christ. This is what it means to forget the word, but he doesn't want to do that. When he hears the word, He wants to incorporate it into his faith, into his obedience, so that it itself is directing and guiding him in the way that he is living. 
And it is a danger for us to forget the word of God. And we should not want to forget it. As it says in James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse 22 to 25. Also remember that James says in James chapter 4, the one who knows the right thing to do and yet fails to do it, for him it is a what? He says it's a sin. If we know the right thing to do, there are times where we have not been taught. And it is sin, but we are sinning unintentionally because we don't know the right thing to do. But when we are taught and we know the right thing to do, then we willfully forget it. For that person, it is a great sin. And we should not do that. James chapter 1 verse 22 says, But prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Right? An effectual doer is in contrast to a forgetful hearer. That's what he's talking about here. Do not let me forget your word means let me be an effectual doer of your word. Now, one last point to make. We have pointed out, and you see multiple times in this passage, the resolve of the prophet, his determination, his commitment, his pledge to know and obey the word of God. Notice again in Psalm 119, notice there in verse 10, he says, with all my heart, I have sought you. Then verse 11, your word I have treasured in my heart. Then in verse 13, with my lips, I have told all the ordinances of your mouth. Verse 14, I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies. Then verse 15, I will meditate on your precepts and I will regard your ways. Then verse 16, I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. Now in this, the prophet is not trusting in his own strength. He's not boasting in his own efforts and all the things that he has done. Of course, he does not entertain any idea that obedience can be achieved by men simply by their own resolve and through their own human strength. We know that because in verse 10, he says, do not let me wander from your commandments. And in verse 11, he's asking God to be the one who teaches him. However, he also knows that it is his duty. It is his obligation to obey God. We are expected and called by God to be faithful to him. And this is why he is resolved to be obedient to God, right? And we will never be obedient to God. We will never live a godly life without being determined to pursue the will of God. Godliness is not achieved accidentally, right? It does not happen overnight and it will not happen by accident as if we're just going to fall into it. Right? You go to sleep one night as an immature Christian and you wake up the next day mature and godly. It doesn't work like that. That is not the way of the Christian life. It takes time. We grow progressively year after year after year, but it also comes through determination. Amen. 
through resolve, through commitment, through diligence in the word of God, and it will not happen without it. Many people approach the Christian life as if it's just a stroll down a lazy river, and we're just going to float our way through life, and we're going to achieve godliness. It doesn't happen that way. We're fighting against everything. We're fighting upstream. We're fighting against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and it takes resolve and determination if we are going to do the will of God. We will become godly without determination about as soon as you will run a marathon without ever going out and practicing and without being determined and without disciplining yourself to do those things. Right? Isn't it true that to run a marathon takes discipline, it takes resolve. And I'm not talking about walking a marathon like some people do, but actually literally running the marathon and finishing it like an actual runner. That takes resolve. It takes discipline, training, determination. It takes commitment for those people to do those kinds of things. This is how we have to approach the Christian life. But there are very few who do this. This mentality of just let go and let God. This is not the way it works. We must be disciplined in the Christian life. And the Bible literally, literally uses that very word to describe the way that we have to live before God. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. It says, Have nothing to do with worldly fables, fit only for old women. On the other hand, Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only a little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Discipline yourself, he says. Discipline. Doesn't that take resolve and commitment to be disciplined in the way that we live? And here, is discipline legalism? No, it's not. It's the Christian life. That's what he's talking about here. This is the way that he is saying that we have to live. And he uses that comparison. Physical training. When people want to do something that takes physical effort, that is uncommon, that the average common person can't do, the couch potato can't do it, they have to discipline themselves in order to accomplish this physical goal. And here, that has little value because it only benefits you in this present life. Because even the most rigorous, disciplined person in terms of what they eat, how they exercise, what they can do, what's going to happen to all of them one day? They're all going to die. They're not going to live forever. But if we discipline ourselves for godliness, it is of great value because it will benefit us now in this life, but also it will benefit us in the life to come. But discipline means that we're purposeful in the way we're living. We're diligent in the way that we're living. So, for example, say a person wants to read through the Bible, which we need to be doing. We need to be reading through the Bible. And they say, I want to read through the Bible in a year. Then we have to sit down and say, how many chapters a day do I need to read? This is how much time it's going to take. I've got to set aside this time, and this is when I'm going to do it. I'm going to get up at this time, and I'm going to read for 30 minutes so that I can read through the Bible in the year, right? I've got to get up. I've got to do it. I have to be diligent. I have to be disciplined, right? If a person isn't thinking about this and taking steps and planning and doing the things that are necessary, he's never going to do it, right? Or he'll do it for a week or two, and then what happens? He forgets, and he doesn't continue doing the things that he said he was going to do. 
He has to have a plan, and he has to stick to it. He has to be determined to do those things. And likely, we also need a friend, a friend or some companion to come and hold us accountable and help us so that we will be diligent to do the things that we know that we need to do. This is the way the prophet is living. This is the way all the godly live throughout the ages, and this is the way that we must be as well. Committed to doing the will of God. So let us then be resolved to know God's word, to obey God's word, to do what it says, to not be a forgetful hearer of the word of God, but to be diligent and to be a doer of the word. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, how it teaches us all that we need, Lord, for life and godliness. Lord, we know that you have called us, Lord, to live a life of purity. Lord, to live a a godly and a righteous life. That you have sent your own son to come and to die on the cross for our sins. Lord, to deliver us from sin. Lord, not only from its penalty, so that we wouldn't go to hell forever, but also from its power and, Lord, from its presence. Lord, that we would be righteous. Lord, that we would be made like him. Lord, we want this to be true of our life, even now. Lord, we know that we cannot live a perfect life. We know that we will always have to be fighting against sin. Lord, from conversion to our death, Lord, we will still be fighting against sin, and the flesh will remain, and it will seek to cause us to do those things that are contrary to your will. But Lord, we want to live a pure life. Lord, we want to overcome sin more and more. And Lord, we pray that you would use your word in our heart, Lord, to put to death the sin that remains, so that, Lord, daily we are conformed more and more into the image of Christ. Lord, we pray that we would have this view of the word of God. Lord, seeing, Lord, that we will never be pure in your sight. Lord, we will never live a godly life apart from your word. That, Lord, our exposure to your word in all ways will be a direct impact on the way that we live. And so, Lord, may we love your word more than anything else. Lord, may we desire it more than riches. Lord, this is what the world is pursuing, the pleasures and comforts of this life. Lord, the love of possessions and love of riches. But Lord, may we love your word and desire and seek it more than they desire riches and wealth. Lord, because we know that it is through your word, Lord, that we will overcome sin. And that is, it is your word that will lead to the salvation of our souls. So Lord, give to us this commitment, Lord, this perspective, this attitude toward your word. Lord, that we would cherish it more and more. And Lord, that we would be like newborn babes, Lord, who long for the pure spiritual milk of the word of God. And Lord, we pray that we would not be those who forget your word. And Lord, that we would not be those who wander from your commandments, but that when your word teaches and instructs us on anything, Lord, we would be quick to repent of whatever sin that we need to repent of, And Lord, to practice whatever righteousness you call us to practice. Lord, that we might prove ourselves to be faithful to you. Lord, may we be those who tremble at your word. And so, Lord, have you regard us in that way. So, Lord, we ask for you to do your work within us. 
and that you would continue to sanctify us by the truth, knowing that your word is truth. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.